1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends
2: Collection. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The
0: reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just
2: perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the
0: podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, we got to start this episode with a shout out. That's
3: right. To listener Katrina. Yeah, we met Katrina at our meetup in L.A. a little while ago, back at the beginning of February, and she had emailed us previously about issues surrounding people with disabilities, all sorts of different issues, really great ideas for some Sminty episodes. And so after we met her, she re-emailed us that, which we're very grateful for, And we have chosen from her list of topics.
0: Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the desexualization of people with disabilities and all of the history and culture and political issues today surrounding that. Um, And again, Katrina, thank you for this fantastic idea, because really, we have not talked all that much at all about people with disabilities On the podcast, it's high time that we cover this. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly because
3: this is a growing conversation and it has been a growing conversation. And I think more recently it entered this topic, entered the public conversation uh, in 2015, when Rochelle Friedman Chapman, who had been paralyzed from the chest down at 24, uh posed in lingerie to combat a bunch of assumptions around the idea that people with disabilities can't be sexy.
0: But even before that, in 2010, Jess Soxie, who has Freeman Sheldon syndrome, posed in American Apparel-esque shots to counteract the othering and desexualization of people with disabilities. And... I remember sharing those photos of Soxie on the stuff Mom never told you social media because I mean, a it was just very clever mm-hmm. um, because those American Apparel poses are so just kind of idiosyncratic to that brand yeah. and so hypersexual. Yeah, and I mean, it was it was just such a smart way to do that and such an important campaign for raising that visibility. And then Jess, who prefers the pronoun they, posted this photo
3: series uh, depicting themselves on naked on a crane or posing with a crane. And they said that they wanted to sort of grapple with this idea of people are always staring at me. What are they staring at? I'm finally going to really, really look at myself naked. And you are going to look at me naked as well. Just to, again, sort of help to fight that stigma of you don't look like the general population at large. So you must be different in every way.
0: Well, and that it's also the polite thing to do to look away from people with disabilities. Yeah. Don't draw attention to it. We Mm -hmm. just kind of politely, in quotes, ignore it. Um And one bit of history that I did not know going into this podcast was that 25 years ago, a woman named Ellen Stoll, who'd been paralyzed from the neck down, became the first woman with a disability to pose in Playboy. And she said, the reason why I chose Playboy magazine for this endeavor is that sexuality is the hardest thing for a disabled person to hold on to. Hef was really adamant that I had the right to have the same sexual voice as women without disabilities. And... I took a look at the photos and I mean, it does look like a typical playboy spread. I mean, Stoll is naked on a bed and you have the kind of glossy filter across her. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it looks just like any other centerfold.
3: Yeah. And there was an interview with both Hef and Stoll. And he said that her disability had made her feel like a non-person, like a non-sexual being. And she was very articulate at expressing exactly that the pictorial could serve not only her, but other people with disabilities as a way of saying we're human beings, too.
0: And sex is a natural part of being alive with a disability or without. And the thing is, if we look back at the history of how we as humans have treated people with disabilities, I mean, this kind of stuff happening is downright revolutionary. Yeah. You know, because we're having to unearth centuries and centuries of this kind of marginalization and desexualization, because as Catherine Quarmby wrote about over in a, a really in-depth piece at Mosaic, that there are some deeply ingrained and dehumanizing tropes about people with disabilities
3: Yeah, she cites author Tom Shakespeare, who wrote The Sexual Politics of Disability. And he points to a bunch of threads from mythology, from literature, which, of course, reflect attitudes in the popular culture at large, stretching back hundreds of years. And, of course, one of the biggest tropes is that... People with disabilities are just completely 100 percent asexual. There's the idea that women and men are viewed as impotent, sexless and unattractive. And this makes them vulnerable to mockery. It was Cicero who wrote, in deformity and bodily disfigurement, there is good material in making jokes. So we are now in the 21st century I feel like just still at the very beginning of unraveling all of that othering and all of the dismissal of people with disabilities.
0: And that othering is very much present, too, in ancient mythology. I mean, if we look at the story of Hephaestus, the blacksmith god with a shriveled foot who marries Aphrodite, Aphrodite ends up carrying on all these affairs because his disability makes him unmanly. There's that emasculating Mm aspect as well. And then if we fast forward to something I had not thought about while reading this book, if we look at Lady Chatterley's lover, Constance, the main woman, takes up with the gamekeeper after her husband is paralyzed from the waist down during World War I. And this develops into a concept known as Chatterley syndrome, where a disabled man's loss of sexual power gives his wife freedom to get her satisfaction elsewhere. Wasn't this? Side note, Caroline, kind of a subplot a little while back in Downton Abbey when Matthew is injured in the war.
2: Oh. Do do we
0: have a little Chatterley syndrome happening there? I think. Didn't he, like, encourage her to
3: go? They weren't married yet. He, like, encouraged her to go find another husband or man or something because he's like, oh, I'm not a whole real man anymore. And she stuck with him.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, from what I remember, too, from Lady Chatterley's Lover, besides... All of the titillating bits was how they characterized her husband as an unlikable guy too. Like the mm-hmm. disability not only made him impotent, but also seemed to make him devoid of any kind of decency.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, and then that ties into another one of the tropes that Quornby and Shakespeare talk about, uh, which is that disabled people are perverse. This was especially a thing. During the 17th century, witch hunts, Uh, everybody from women with mental health problems, older people with dementia to people with cancerous growth faced the stigma that they were somehow twisted. And this was tied in with the idea that disability was sometimes considered a punishment for sins uh, and that a person with a disability was an unsuitable partner, perhaps because he or she
0: supposedly had evil powers of some kind. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the literary example of Shakespeare's Richard III, uh, he's described as having twisted body and mind.
3: Yeah, but then, but then, so, so you've got the tropes of people with disabilities being completely asexual, or they're perverse in their sexuality, but then you have the horrific hypersexualization of people with disabilities.
0: Yeah, so this assumption has been used particularly against women with learning disabilities, and I mean, it was largely used as a justification to abuse women in mental institutions, and even in the 19th century, whistleblowers were drawing attention to rape, abuse and even murder, all based on this concept of, you know, I guess, hypersexuality being a part of their mental disability.
3: Right. And I'm sure that there's a power element in that, too, of like um, using hypersexuality to justify your thinking that uh, this this woman is loose. You know, she she will submit to my power because she's
0: obviously weak. And then finally, we have the whole contamination fears around people with disability, this worry that people with disabilities might pass it along to their offspring. And this is something, too, that ends up essentially being codified into American law with a Supreme Court decision that we're going to talk about in just a second as part of the heyday of the eugenics movement in the United States.
3: Yeah. So in case you're wondering why... These tropes about people with disabilities are such a big deal. You all you have to do is look at the very real consequences that came out of them. And like Kristen said, I mean, we get the eugenics movement in the late 19th century and early 20th century.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was something that we talked about in our two parter on the legal history of abortion. It ties into that Um But it also initiated, starting in the 1880s, these things called ugly laws or unsightly beggar laws that literally made it illegal in certain cities for people who were deemed unsightly from being seen on the streets at all. And this, Caroline, reminds me of modern day anti-panhandling laws, which are also sort of a legal way to get unsightly homeless people off of the sidewalks as well. Um, And It wasn't just, though, the discomfort around people with disabilities begging and possibly upsetting people on the street and maybe driving away potential business, but also fears around what reaction it would cause in pregnant women.
3: Yeah, it was believed that a mother encountering these unsightly beggars would have a, quote, equivalent impression made on the fetus. So, like, somehow... Her unborn child would catch a disability just by virtue of the fact that she saw someone with a disability
0: on the street. And then finally, in the mid 20th century, those, quote unquote, ugly laws are largely replaced on a state by state basis with state directed institutionalization and treatments. But if we go to 1914, it was illegal for the classified, quote, feeble minded and insane people to marry. I mean if we if you think of words like dumb idiot feeble-minded I mean those were actual groups of people according to medical science of the day
3: yeah you could look back at old census records and see people classified in that way um, and so from 1907 to 1928 thousands of Americans were sterilized as part of this growing eugenics movement and a 1924 Virginia law for instance allowed the forced sterilization of, quote, feeble-minded, insane,
0: depressed, mentally handicapped,
3: epileptic, and other individuals.
0: And learning about this, Caroline, I'm really interested to read a new book by Adam Cohen called Imbeciles, which is all about the Supreme Court, the eugenics movement in the United States. And it centers around that Virginia case and the forced sterilization of a woman named Carrie Buck. And what happened with Carrie Buck was that she was raped and impregnated as a result of that. And after the child was born, her family were just you know completely incensed by the whole situation. And so they had her deemed feeble-minded and sent away to a colony for epileptics and the feeble-minded – And they wanted the people who were pro for sterilization were looking for some kind of test case in order to legalize this whole thing. So there was this guy who came in to the epileptic and feeble minded colony where Carrie Buck was and saw her and said, oh, this is perfect because. Her mother had also been classified as feeble-minded. She was classified as feeble-minded. And she now had this baby who Mm -hmm. could possibly be shown as feeble-minded, too, in order to prove that whole contagious aspect to it. So they essentially had a sham case, and it allowed for her forced sterilization. So then in 1927, Carrie Buck brings this case again to the Supreme Court To challenge that decision and famed justice Oliver Wendell Holmes writes in his Supreme Court decision upholding that forced sterilization law that, quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And as a result, as Cohen talks about to Terry Gross in this Fresh Air interview that I was listening to that now has me wanting to read his new book, Imbeciles, as a result. Of that Supreme Court decision, 70,000 forced sterilizations then happened across the United States.
3: Yeah, because in the wake of that decision, 27 other states began sterilization programs.
0: Yeah, I mean, in all of that, too, we need to come back, Caroline, and do a whole episode just on the forced sterilization issue because it was something directed not only at the so-called feeble-minded, but also especially women of color. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are all sorts of really disgusting layers to the whole thing, but... Um, And it culminated, too, in the murders of 200,000 people with disabilities, if we head over to World War II, 200,000 people with disabilities who were killed by the Nazis. Yeah. And so this is the base of where
3: we are today. I mean, this is the history that we're coming out of. And so these days, the fallout from all of those stereotypes and tropes and fears uh, is still evident. Uh, and I, I know that having just talked about eugenics and forced sterilization, dating seems almost, like, it seems almost flippant to talk about dating. But this is a real consequence of our history of marginalizing people with disabilities. So, You've got the dating issue, right? People with disabilities are less likely to marry or have long-term partners. But, of course, that varies depending on impairment type, according to research. And there was a 2014 Guardian poll uh, that found 44% of respondents had never had sex with someone with a disability and said that they did not think they ever would. So, like, that's where we are. Those are the attitudes that we are dealing with.
0: And one thing that activist Jew Gosling, who wrote Abnormal, How Britain Became Body Dysmorphic and the Key to a Cure, discusses is the issue of family and friends of people with disabilities overprotecting them out of a fear of exploitation. Because you have not only this desexualization, but also, too, this infantilization. Yeah,
3: exactly. Of, Of protecting people with disabilities as if they are permanent babies permanent children yeah
0: i mean and that's regardless of whether we're talking about people with mental disabilities or physical disabilities right exactly and gosling points out you know most women
3: we know are looking for a relationship and disabled people are no different um and she talks about how those fears of exploitation could potentially explain this assumption that it's better to shield people with disabilities from reaching out for sexual relationships rather than have them risk rejection. So we're trying to protect we, I mean, families are trying to protect them on every front. Like, oh, you're, you're too, again, like feeble to handle rejection or trying to date on your own. And we are also maybe a little scared of your sexuality because you're so different.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you could say that for those, those family members, I mean, the the motive is benevolent, but it's all, you know, symptoms of this much larger and deep-rooted issue. Um, But one of the brighter sides of this growing conversation that has been helped along, I think, a lot by social media and, you know, visibility projects um, is how those layers of discrimination are even further compounded for people with disabilities who are also LGBTQ. Right. Yeah, because you've got the whole issue of... Conflict
3: that can potentially arise when you as a person with a disability who also is LGBTQ have a personal assistant or a caregiver who maybe doesn't approve of your sexuality and or then tries to control it.
0: Yeah. And there are also instances, too, of opposite sex partners being allowed to stay overnight in supported housing whereas same-sex or trans partners aren't. So we have homophobia and transphobia at work as well.
3: Yeah, all of this stuff is very layered and wrapped up with all of these fears. And another huge consequence of that, with its own further consequences, because honestly this discussion is like knocking down dominoes of terrible, Um, is lack of access to appropriate sex ed. And when I say appropriate, I don't mean like, don't, don't, talk about too much you've got to keep it appropriate i mean like literally sex sex education that is appropriate for the audience because people with disabilities don't necessarily have the same concerns or needs as their able-bodied peers
0: yeah healthcare providers typically aren't equipped to address sexual health and function concerns and then we have the complicating factor of individual disabilities requiring different aids and information. But even though that might be a complicating factor, of course, that shouldn't be an argument to just dismiss it entirely. I mean, which is essentially historically what has
3: happened. I mean, sex ed in schools, as poor as it generally is in our country... Um, Still, when it happens, is for the most part directed toward able-bodied students. Um, There was a 2010 Canadian Council for Learning study talking to people with disabilities that found 100 percent of them said that their education had been inadequate and that educators didn't have sufficient resources to deal with the topic.
0: And it's been a problem despite the 1975 Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which is, P.S., now called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that required school districts to provide students with disabilities access to the same information and classes as their peers.
3: Yeah, and in a lot of the articles and sources we read Many men and women with disabilities are quoted talking about their horrific experiences with sex ed, and Tim Rose is no different. He's the founder of the Rose Center for Love, Sex, and Disability, and he was born with spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. He said that his school growing up largely denied him access to sex ed information at all, completely, even asking him to leave the room when it was discussed. And he brought up a point that you will see in a lot of articles about this topic. He said sex ed for me was mostly trial and error, a mix of getting what information I could from friends And from TV. And this seems to be really key. You hear a lot of people with disabilities talking about like, well, it just kind of came down to watching porn or watching like movies where people were having sex or just talking with other people with disabilities because there's not a base of information for a lot of these people. They tend to be completely ignored. And that in and of itself, of course, has consequences, too, if you're not educating people about sexuality, sexual function, and safety, whether you have a disability or not. Um, Children with disabilities, for instance, are at a much higher risk of sexual abuse, uh, and doctors screen people with disabilities for STIs, certain cancers, and other reproductive health issues at much lower rates.
0: And I'm really hoping that we hear from some special ed teachers and experts listening to this podcast, because I am curious to get the firsthand information of what is happening in schools, because Caroline, my mom was a special ed teacher. I spent a number of summers working with um, a special ed day camp and that was mostly run by special ed teachers. And it seemed like a, there were so few resources for Mm -hmm. them. I mean, we're talking about public schools here. So you have that whole factor compounding things And also the focus of I think one argument, depending on the level of disability that we would be talking about, there's a lot more focus on just daily skills that Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that it might be an issue of prioritization where it's like, well, we have to make sure that this person can feed and clean themselves versus, you know, sex education. But that doesn't answer the question of why in some schools when sex ed classes happen the special ed kids are then taken out of the room
3: well yeah and then you've got the issue too of people who become disabled later in life due to injury or illness Um, and that the fact that there's even an interesting gender division in that so when you suffer a spinal injury for instance and have to go to rehab um, the counselors and therapists are again, like quick to educate about how you take care of yourself. Let's, let's focus on learning to walk again and how you can get around your house and deal with daily life and sexual education and discussions about sexual functioning are uh, often left out or like maybe they'll pop in a, a DVD to avoid any awkward conversations. Like, uh, here's some sex ed for you now.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I do want to quickly go back and clarify in terms of talking about uh, special ed classes that I don't want to conflate physically disabled people from mentally disabled people. But just to emphasize how, like, yes, this is a diverse group of people who are often just like conflated into one monolithic disabled pool. But even if we are talking about people with mental disabilities, because of all those issues that you talked about, Caroline, in terms of consent and sexual abuse and the lack of screening for STDs and STIs and their existence of sexuality, Mm -hmm. that they need to be educated, too. But going back to looking at physical disability and sex education, there's also a gendered aspect to this as well. Um, Christine Selinger, who works at SCI Canada, which works to empower and inform healthcare professionals to answer questions about this sort of stuff, talks about how after spinal cord injuries, men tend to inquire about their ability to get an erection almost immediately.
3: Yeah, it's like top of mind. It's one of the first things they ask about, like, yes, I need to, I want to, you know, try to increase my strength. I want to learn how to get around my house, but I need to know will I have an erection again. Yeah,
0: totally understandable. Um Whereas, though, women's questions about sexuality and vaginal functioning and all of that, come later during the rehabilitation process and tend to focus more around the relationship aspects, like yeah. whether they can just date. So Sellinger asks, like, why can't we make this part of the initial rehab process for everybody? Right. And because Sellinger at
3: 19, suffered a spinal injury. And she said, too, that, you know, when she was going to rehab and going through therapy and talking with doctors, you know, her first concern was... I'm, I'm having to say goodbye to my life as it was. I'm having to, you know, give up many activities. My life will never be the same. You know, sex wasn't top of mind. She's like, maybe dating was, you know, will anyone ever want to date me or be in a relationship with me? But now that she works for, uh, SCI Canada, or I believe SCI Ontario maybe, um, she really advocates strongly for these questions and concerns to be part of that initial process. But it's part of combating whether you have a disability or not. It's part of combating that larger social ick factor that we have around sex and sex ed. We're all so uncomfortable talking about it regardless of our abilities.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially, especially in the United States. But we do have some good news to share because there has been So much disability activism that has truly radically changed the environment, both literally and figuratively, around disability in the United States. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Caroline, you do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently. But constant trips to the post office can get in the way. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time at the post office and more time growing your business. That's because
3: Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. You can use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter in any package. It's like Stamps.com does the thinking for you. Join over 500,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com
0: and never go to the post office again. And right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for a special offer it's a four-week trial with a 110 and ten dollar bonus offer including postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in stuff that's stamps.com enter stuff and now back to the show
3: So it's interesting to watch the trajectory of the disability rights movement. And we want to really focus on how sexual politics became part of that movement and part of that discussion. But to back up a little, to give you a little perspective, the movement really gained steam in the wake of the World War's and Vietnam you have disabled veterans returning home needing services needing to be seen and heard and recognized but also like needing to be able to get into a building and you also know? needing to be able to get employment right exactly and so while you did have people with disabilities returning from World War 1 and World War 2 it really wasn't until post Vietnam or or mid Vietnam um that it really became part of the political climate because you already had the fight for civil rights and women's rights going on. And so the fight for civil rights of people with disabilities fit naturally into that political climate.
0: Yeah. I mean, and this is one of those movements, too, of the 60s and 70s, I think, along with gay rights that we're starting to learn more about. But I feel like we still, in our popular understanding, don't know that much about the disability rights movement that was happening um, but there was a range of organizations that were developing during this time, including the National Center for Law and the Handicapped, the Disability Rights Center, the American Disabled for Public Transit Group, and the National Center for Law and the Deaf. And keep in mind, too, that during this time, some of those so-called ugly laws that we talked about earlier in the podcast were still on the books in certain major cities i
3: mean if they weren't if they already had been removed we were still left with the stigma of that absolutely um and so then you see sexual politics very naturally becoming a part of this movement uh advocates challenging those tropes we discussed at the top of the podcast by pointing out for one hey listen not all sex is about procreation so if i can't actually procreate or if i have to have sex in a different way than what you consider normal that should be okay. Um, you also have advocates trying to educate people, still in the 60s and 70s, trying to educate people that not all impairments are inheritable. Stop being so afraid. And even if they are, though, a lot of communities, particularly the capital D deaf community, have
0: embraced their differences as being part of a larger culture. And the University of California responded around this time to student activists by founding a sexuality and disability center staffed with sex therapists who could not only give advice, but also connect students with sex surrogates. And sex surrogates
3: actually gained a lot of attention a few years ago, thanks to two films, Breathing Lessons and The Sessions, which were inspired by Mark O'Brien's encounters with surrogate Cheryl Cohen Green. Um And so a lot of people are a little bit confused and this is understandable about what a sex surrogate is versus a sex worker in this country. And it's interesting because the legal territory is a little murky in the U.S., for instance, sex surrogates, their services are neither
0: legal nor illegal. And as the Kinsey Institute explains it, surrogate sex partners are trained by the International Surrogate Partner Association to address specific sexual difficulties that a client might have, not necessarily emphasizing genital-based pleasure. So, for instance, a sex surrogate might help expand a client's ideas of what sex is beyond penis and vagina, which that's just, like, good to do, period. Exactly. And and they also help clients build
3: self-awareness and skills around both physical and emotional intimacy. Really just a small minority of the time is spent on actual physical interaction. And surrogate partners often work with people who don't have partners for whatever reason uh, that they could practice these sexual and emotional intimacy issues With And so it's not just that surrogate sex partners are working with people with disabilities. They're working with a range of clients who have really widely varying needs.
0: Yeah. And so this brings us to the sex worker question, because there have been some arguments more recently that sex work should be decriminalized specifically for people who can't have sex independently. And perhaps some have proposed those services should even be funded by governments.
3: Yeah, and for instance, a lot of people cite a a 2005 Disability Now survey that found that 37.6% of men with disabilities and 16% of women with disabilities would pay for sex. And while that's not a majority by any stretch, it still is a larger number than people in the general population. And there have also been studies into motivations for paying for sex, uh, for hiring sex workers that have found, I mean, not surprisingly, uh, that men with disabilities pay for sex for reasons that go beyond just like men need sex. It's a thing that men need. Uh, sociologist Kirsty Lydiard from Sheffield University in the UK uh, found that men cited the reasons of, yes, gaining sexual skills and experience. But also invigorating the body, having something to talk with male friends about, and gaining a sense of independence. And I think it's important to note, and we will note this a little bit later, that this is mostly focusing on men. Like the sex work conversation is mostly... You know, mostly focused on men and, and maybe the sex surrogate conversation is different. Um, I'm not you know, I'm not aware of that, but it is worth noting that, like, OK, this this is a thing to bookmark that men are the basis of this conversation.
0: Well, and a lot of these dynamics are reflective of how we perceive and assume things about sexuality and gender in the able-bodied population as well.
3: Yeah, but there are a lot of people working to make this happen. You've got Australian sex worker Rachel Watton, who founded the group Touching Base to connect people with
0: disabilities to sex workers. And Watton's main argument is that basically people with disabilities should have all of the same rights that able-bodied folks have, and it shouldn't be some kind of all-or-nothing thing. And she said, quote, for some people with disabilities, they only have one life. And to wait around for society to say, I will date someone with cerebral palsy. Well, when you see some of my clients, their prospects of getting a partner are limited, if not nil. Yeah. And so she basically says, yes, society
3: should change. We should all be more accepting. We shouldn't ignore or marginalize or infantilize people with disabilities. But until society has a radical shift, I want to be here to provide these services. Um Related services also exist in Japan, for instance. There is a masturbation service only for men, exclusively for men, called White Hands. And in places like Holland and Denmark, where there are more permissive laws around sex work, you've got this sexual assistant model um, basically, social workers will ask clients with disabilities whether they need help with their sexuality or their sexual function. And they may fund visits to sexual assistants or sex workers. And this was pioneered by Dutch sex assistant Nina DeVries, whose clients started requesting erotic massages in the 90s. And the work basically grew from there. You know, she doesn't have intercourse with them, but she works with clients with dementia, people with learning difficulties. But critically, and this is a major part of this discussion, she will not work with people who can't give clear consent. This is a huge concern for people in this community that, you know, whether you're a sex worker, uh, a politician, someone with a disability, this is a huge part of the conversation, the issue of consent.
0: Yeah. And, And also not everybody is buying the argument to legalize sex work specifically for people with disabilities, but it's not necessarily because of concerns around sex work itself.
3: Right, exactly. Um A lot of people are concerned about issues of commodifying sex and commodifying women's bodies. Um, Alex Guinness, for instance, who's an American disability advocate and a former dating and relationship columnist, said that, It also helps us ignore bigger societal issues, those things that Rachel Watton was addressing in her quote that we talked about earlier. Um, Alex writes, it makes it so society can check this box that men are getting laid so we don't have to have broader social change. We are giving them sex through a brothel so we don't have to change our social attitudes around socially excluded people with disabilities. And she says it pities And coddles us as if we are being given things that will assuage us rather than having society change around us. And that
0: was something echoed by a musician and TV presenter, Mick Scarlett, who is not a fan of this idea either because, quote, apparently that's the only way I'm going to lose my virginity. And he disagrees that it's a natural right to have sex and argues instead that all of this just distorts people with disabilities relationships with sex because if you set up this system where people can people with disabilities can go and pay for sex and it's perfectly fine and legal but not for anybody else exactly scarlet says then this is going to just create this whole idea that people with disabilities if they have had sex and you've paid for it and it further marginalizes scarlet argues people with disabilities because on top of the layer of oh well you're disabled and therefore unattractive and probably not sexual anyway, but also, too, you frequent sex workers.
3: Right, yeah. He takes major issue with this idea that, quote, some people are too hideous and too disabled to have sex like the rest of us, and so they have to pay for it. And he says, on top of that, why is it okay to oppress women and make their bodies a commodity? Of course, that you know, it's a whole separate discussion about you know choosing to be in sex work and having that be an empowering thing that you choose to do. But I mean, he has a point that there are so many layers to you can't just say, "Yeah, let's just let's just legalize sex work," but just for this group of people. And that's something that Jesse Nicole, writing for Exo Jane, points out. She's like, wait, 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 wait! I'm totally on board with the idea of normalizing, legalizing, and making safer sex work." But why are people with disabilities considered like this special group who it should only be for them? If we're going to have sex work, shouldn't people with disabilities just be another
0: normal client base for sex workers? Yeah, I mean, because she argues that, quote, casting disabled clients is somehow more legitimate than other clients does a disservice to everybody. Because by doing that, it holds up the idea of disability Granting some innate nobility, as she puts it, while at the same time automatically casting quote unquote other clients in a negative light. So it's still othering in other words. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's othering. It seems to be othering for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's like no, no way around that at this point in the conversation. Yeah. But the thing is, sex work aside, these kinds of discussions around sexuality and sex ed and how it relates to disability are beneficial for all of us. Yeah. So Penny Pepper,
3: who's the author of a 2003 book, Desires Unborn, erotic short stories featuring people with disabilities, uh, points out that this is really working to open conversations and improve communication. And as we've talked about on the podcast before, open communication can only be positive when it comes to sex and relationships in general at all. Um, And she says, I do feel I can talk about sex in an open and relaxed way that I don't see with many non-disabled people. I think it's because we've had to confront these issues about body image. And that's a good place to be Um, because she goes on to further point out that, like, look, whether you have a physical or mental disability or not, if you don't look like a supermodel, it's hard
0: for a lot of us out there when it comes to body image and sexuality. Well, I mean, and, and too, if we just... Take a kind of bird's eye view of all of the different layers of discrimination and marginalization, you know, as it applies to sexuality, whether it's on the basis of gender or ethnicity, obviously ability in this case or even socioeconomic status. I mean, there's so much discomfort Mm -hmm. and also just erasure on so many different levels, too. So I think that's another reason why these kinds of conversations are important, because it opens up the door to more of these important conversations. I um, mean, that's something that the, the Disabled Students Union at UC Berkeley is really doing. They, they push the boundaries with super open and human panels discussing with students and academics alike issues around sex, love and disability, addressing sex as a natural part of life and sexuality as a healthy thing. To explore.
3: Yeah. And there were actually there was actually a documentary made about these panels at UC Berkeley. And they talked to one young woman who said that sex was anything she could get off on. And the quote was, this brings us back into the human race, because like you said, sex, sexuality, desire, these are all parts of normal human existence. And advocates' discussions around these things are really valid for a larger audience and help us to remember that sex doesn't have to revolve around these heteronormative notions of sex equals penetration.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is something, too, that we've talked about, especially in terms of sex within LGBTQ communities and how we have elevated penis and vagina intercourse to be what sex equals and how a damaging and just straight up limiting Mm -hmm. that is as well. Yeah. And so this idea that sex
3: is and can be more than just penetration, it benefits older people. It benefits women who might not enjoy it because of either vaginal pain or because of sexual assault related trauma. It also benefits men, for instance, whose penises have been amputated or damaged because of cancer and injury. And the idea, then, that your erogenous zones can be all over your body, it can be your earlobes, it can be your neck, it can be behind the knees, that benefits all of us. Anyone who wants to expand their own sexual pleasure or better understand their own sexuality, period.
0: Yeah, and so as we close out this episode, we want to leave you with some thoughts from Kirsty Liddyard, who we've uh, cited earlier from Sheffield University, who said... Disability and impairment can invigorate sexuality and disrupt our standard norms of gender and sexuality. Disabled bodies give us the chance to think outside of the box, outside the vision of penetration and the Hollywood view of sex. And that to me, Caroline, sounds like a mighty empowered vision. Yeah, that's the that's the sexual world I want to live in. Exactly. And so I think all of these
3: photo projects, photo essays like visibility efforts on the part of activists and advocates are so important because people with disabilities are just as normal as anyone else and just as big a part of life as anyone else. And so. Why would we not have these conversations? They do benefit everyone.
0: And, Caroline, one thing that we didn't address in this episode that we could probably go back and do another podcast on are representations of people with disability in pop culture and yeah. specifically how their sexuality is portrayed. If Be- if at all. If at all. Yeah, because going back a little bit, the first two things that come to mind are, A, The Other Sister starring Juliette Lewis, where yeah. the whole thing kind of revolves around her wanting to have A relationship with uh, when she has a mental disability and she wants to have a relationship with a a guy, Giovanni Ravisi, um, who also has a mental disability and like all of the concerns around that, which echo a lot of what we were talking about. And then two, and listeners might have to correct me on the details of this, but I remember watching Life Goes On when I was a kid and Corky, who has Down syndrome in the show, I want to say at some point in later seasons he starts dating or he wants to date. Mm-hmm. So there was that, I mean, where there were still like, there were kind of these precious representations. Yeah, exactly. If that makes sense. Um, but it does seem like, at least in the past few years, we have been getting some better representations. Um, Artie Anglee comes to mind. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a fully formed character. He dates, he has a fabulous singing voice. Yeah. Um, so that seems like a step in the right direction. Yeah, you've got the real life story,
3: too, of Stephen Hawking and Jane Hawking. Um, and then more recently, I don't even know if it's out yet, but you've got the film adaptation of the book Me Before You, which is a romance uh, between in the movie. It's going to be Amelia Clarke, also known as the Queen of Dragons, Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones, uh, who falls in love with a recently paralyzed man who is incredibly handsome and whose name is escaping me at the moment. I think his character's name is Will Trainer. Uh, I don't know the actor's name. But so slowly getting representations in in popular culture. But I don't know. what What movies and TV shows and characters are we missing?
0: Yeah, I mean, because we are just talking off the top of our heads right now. So, you know, if this is an episode that you would like to hear, and I think that we should absolutely do it. Please send us all of those, um all those pop cultural representations. And it can even be beyond film and television um, that come to mind. And I have a feeling that what we've talked about today resonates personally with a lot of our listeners, not just Katrina. Shout out to Katrina again for this fantastic episode. And we definitely want to hear from you on this because this is something, first of all, that. Caroline and I, as able-bodied people, we don't have a first-hand experience with it. And we need your help sort of filling in all of the, all of the nuances and experiences that, um, that we missed in talking about this very, very important topic. So we want to hear from you. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
3: Okay, so I have a letter here from Brittany uh, from our ghosting episode, and it's real funny. Brittany, I enjoyed your email. She says, here's a true story. I was using one of the popular dating sites and set up a coffee with a nice young dude. We met, talked, and instantly knew there was no attraction, but we got along really well. We talked for almost two hours. He was in the military, very polite, and his friends had set up this dating profile for him. He told me he was flying to California the next day for an interview with the FBI. We exchanged phone numbers, give a buddy hug, and went our separate ways. The next day, I texted him, good luck with your interview. He replied, thank you. I will let you know how it goes. Well, a day passes, so I jokingly sent another text that said, hope it went well. Did you already get sent on a secret mission? Never heard from him again. Pretty sure my name is in a file somewhere. True story. True story. Thank you for your excellent research and more importantly your passion. Keep rocking socks, and Brittany, you keep rocking socks as well. I like to imagine that he did get sent like to some strange country, and he's on some secret mission now. Although that sounds more CIA than FBI, but you know.
0: Yeah, I like to imagine he was already in the FBI and he was undercover, <laughs> and he was like, I can't text her back. Uh, all of the all of the ghosting narratives that yeah. we fill in. This is the let's make that TV show. Yes. Um, I've got one here from hope about our episode on mechanics and she writes, while I don't know much about carb mechanics, specifically my first job out of college involved me working as an industrial maintenance supervisor and engineer. I was the only woman in the maintenance department of a multi-billion dollar company and I was only on temporary assignment. I had to win over a big group of older men who frequently referred to women in the maintenance field being useless Weak and unwilling to do the dirty work to respect me as a technical consultant and leader. After a few months of getting under machines with the guys and providing them technical training based on my larger engineering projects, we developed some great friendships. Some of them even admitted being impressed and learning something while I was there. I'm so happy to hear about more women getting out there in this industry because I definitely found it challenging and a little lonely. I'd love to see more ladies fixing machines. Well, hope All the gold stars to you for doing that because, A, that's a really cool line of work that you are in that my brain cannot entirely process, and, B, I mean, just that you have the people skills in order to to do that, to lead that group of dudes, is super impressive. So folks, now I want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources. So you can learn more about people with disabilities and sexuality, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair, but Pantene is changing that. Pantene's rosewater collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.